And we're live with our 119th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Um, there's There's a lot going on in the world right now. We are happy to be back and talk. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we really have a lot of announcements this week, Ken. Um, I, I know we're still getting rolling back into, you know, 2021. Um, I, we're kind of waiting to see what conferences look like before we start scheduling some of our trainings. Uh, that being said, if you're interested, please reach out. Right? We can always set something up virtually. Not that we, we love the virtual trainings, but it is an option. Um, yeah, I don't know, Ken, what, what you got this week? Oh, I, I, I did uh, want to share my, uh, share the, um, hold on. What, what do you have this week while I, while I pull it up? Yeah. If you look behind me on the floor, there's some shirts with, uh, packages and I got some bubble wrap back there. Um, so I'm mailing out the swag. So if you just be, if you've been on the show, uh, just, be on the lookout for an email from me. I've been doing it in waves, like emailing people to um, make sure their addresses are up to date. And so that I can, so the first mailing wave goes out tomorrow and then, um, but I just keep continuing to hit people up via email. Those that I haven't gotten a response from, I've just been going to Twitter to try and get a response. So um, yeah, long story short, just keep an eye out if you've been on the show and you're expecting a t-shirt or swag uh for for an email from from us. So Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um I, I wanted to share this cracked me up this week, right? Uh this is from Clint Gibbler, who's been on the podcast. It was part of his TLDR sec email this week. Um basically a a, a flow chart on when to use C. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, practically <yeah>. never. <laughs> practically never. I, I loved that. Are you an expert list? Right. An expert fulfills two of the following. You can quote C RFCs from memory. Okay. You know, you are on the C Lane committee. Twenty years of professional experience. Ten plus years. Ten plus plus inch gray beard or personal friends with Dennis Ritchie. Right. Like that's the only thing that qualifies you as an expert in C. So basically it's Stefan. The rest of us just need to leave C alone. That's that's, that was my take. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think somebody, cause we discussed it in Slack had said that they, <clears throat> they had a reason. I don't remember what it was. There, there was a reason they said that uh, they were talking about, there was a reason for, for C with, um, I mean, the, the traditional reasons you would use C, but uh, yeah, I, I can't remember. I don't even know why I brought that up. I can't remember the conversation. <laughs> no, I, I like I've used C in the past when like, um, but, you know, again, like I, I'm kind of a graybeard when it comes to that. Like I actually took courses in C, like that was one of the first languages I learned. Um, but uh, the memory issues and handling of memory is, it's painful, right? Like I, there is like, it's so much easier to, to spin something up in Python or Rust, Go, whatever else, right? Depending on what you what you actually need. Um, but performance is usually what they step back to, right? Um, yeah. Hey, 
Also, uh, I, I think we should also mention uh, while we're talking about sort of like little uh, tidbits of stuff going on about the uh, bug track being shut down. Probably uh, if people hadn't heard that, that might be interesting to some folks. Oh, yeah. Bug track. Um, when did that yeah. start? When, that, when was that first? Was it was it like 1993, 95? Yeah, it would have been somewhere around that time. Oh, it, yep, 93. I'm looking at, you know, I'll show the description. It's all archived. It's from Security Focus was the organization that was running it, right? But here, here's a good description on it. Um, this was like the original, like, CVE announcement, bug announcement, mailing list, um, 1993. Uh, like there, there were times in my career where this was the, I, I mean, this was the main source of what's going on in the community. This was before Twitter, um, like people, and it was pretty open, right? Like it became moderated. Sounds like if you look at the history in 1995, but the first couple of years, it was just an open mailing list. Anybody could submit things, right? Um, but 1993, Aleph One took it over in 96, right? Aleph One, if you don't know who that is, go do some research. Um, he's the one that uh, made exploits popular, right? Like, uh, you know, hacking for fun and profit. That's uh, it comes from Aleph One. Um, but yeah, it was, I don't know, like, it, it, it feels like a, a loss to me. But then I think about it and I haven't been following it for a few years. I, I mean, did you ever subscribe? Were you ever, you know, watching it? Yeah. At one point, but, uh, those days are gone. Not yeah. because of any other reason than, uh, the things that I need to subscribe to typically are Google groups and, mm -hmm. um, Slack. So yeah. it's just kind of went in the way of those are the, yeah, easiest way. And newsletters, you know, it's kind of just the easiest way to get news. And then, um, yeah. It, it was definitely just a raw feed, right, of what right. was going on in the industry. Um, and at the time, it was everything was mixed in. So there wasn't any specialization in application security or network security. So you would see firewall updates. You would see, um, like, exploits being posted. Um but I, like I, I honestly remember in my early in my career, like going to my like first security gig, like interview, and then asking, "Hey, where do you, where do you, how do you stay up to date with the security industry?" And Bug Track was the first thing I said, right? Um, yeah, because it was the only thing that was out there that actually summarized. Um, but it did require a pretty, it it required a lot of time, right? I remember spending, you know at least an hour every couple of days going through everything that was in there to see what was relevant to me. Um, I, I mean, I remember XSS popping up in there and um, yeah, I, I, so it's, it, it does feel rather poignant that it's, it's gone away, but I understand why, right. It, it became less relevant over time. People have gravitated to other mediums to consume that information. So Yeah. Interesting. Well, rest in peace. Fuck <laughs> Jack, rest in peace. Yeah. I was in I was into hacking before I got in the military. Um but when I was in the military and overseas our bandwidth sucked. Um it was terrible. I mean like an entire sh on the ship we we shared a T1 line 
Um, and I think that was like what 1.544 megabits or something like that for a T1 line. And that was spread throughout the entire ship. And that's like in port, like out to sea, it's, you know, you know, you get what you get. So what I would do is I would go to my, like the ways I would find out about new tooling and new stuff is I would go to these, uh, I think I've told you this before I'd go to these, uh, like stands in Italy and uh, okay. where, where I was stationed and they mm-hmm. would have hacking magazines in Italian. So I would have to nice. try and translate what I, what, cause I learned a little bit of Italian, Italian when I lived in Italy, obviously, cause like we didn't have a base or anything. You just live out in town and obviously they don't speak English. Wouldn't make any sense. Most people don't want to speak English or don't speak English. I don't know which, but so you have to like, try and like decipher what it's saying. And then you get these CDs full of tools and of new tools released. And that's basically how I got my information. So yeah, you want to talk about like the weird ways that we used to get this stuff. It's just so much better nowadays than back then. It was like such a niche, like underground kind of thing still felt like. Yeah. I, I mean, realistically you talk about like the hacker zine, like um like industry i don't know what you want to call it culture back then right in the late 90s early 2000s when you had your 2600 groups um i mean the defcon groups were just kind of starting up at that point but like if i go back to the the 90s right like frack yeah frack was amazing right like it just that's a one, right? Like is in frack, like his, his paper, that's where he released it. And there's a whole bunch of really, really interesting topics. And it's still pretty relevant. Like I, I went back recently. If you haven't ever looked at frack, if you want to know kind of what that fill is like, I think it's just frack.org. Right. I'm trying to remember. Yep. Yeah. I thought it was frack.org. Yeah. Let me, I'll post that up really quick. Um, yeah, and and it's it's all very kind of like we were saying last week, right? Like counterculture, um, freaks and geeks, yeah. man. That's basically what it geeks. was. Yeah, yeah, frack dot org. Um, but getting that information was a lot. It was a lot harder, right? There wasn't people that were posting, or if they did, they summarize it. And and frack and the twenty six hundred zines, those were actually printed magazines you could go and buy right like in in italian that's probably what you were buying over there or something similar um Mm -hmm. that had instructions on how to do different different things um a lot of like at&t article articles on at&t or you know phone networks or war dialing i mean it was a fun time for sure but it it was you know it, it took a lot to actually explore um, and you were also fighting that kind of gray line of, hey, is this actually legal? Am I allowed to do this? Um, no. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Although the laws have like certainly developed quite a bit more than back mm-hmm. then. I mean, honestly, there, I mean, well, there were no, it's like, it's like, it's actually a lot like what we've been discussing and everyone's been discussing lately with technology and sort of legal precedents. Uh, you know, the technology outpacing the laws essentially and the laws trying to catch up and that there was, there wasn't much. There was, um, I think, uh, I think Mitnick was one of the high profile ones back then. And, uh, 
who there was another person, uh, Sammy, a little bit later, a little bit later um, with MySpace. Yes, kids. Sammy was once a <laughs> a, a, uh, a, a resident of the state, shall we say? Yes. <laughs> um, before, you know, all the cool white hat stuff research, there yeah. was some, uh, you know. But, you know, that's what I always talk about. It's always like uh, we we always talk about it. It's like, man, like it could have happened to anybody, you know, because just like uh, the nature of uh, what we did was really walking a fine line. Um, and that's that's why, you know, last week made that comment about some of us did it better than others, you know, but uh, and it's just kind of interesting to look back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, some of the stuff that we did back in the day was definitely was definitely walking that line and that that, that was all part of it right that I, I remember the the phone companies were always a huge target because they controlled the communication right like they 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 controlled being able to get access to information and that like and there was no one else besides ma bell or at&t or whatever subsidiary you happen to live under there was no other way to get through that um, and you know, they, we, we can talk, start talking about like, you know, PBS or not PBS, sorry, PBX hacking and, you know, trying to find ways to, you know, connect to different BBSs where they, you could actually get access to that information. And that was one of the reasons why when AOL and those other things first launched, it was so revolutionary was because it gave us access to that information by be, being able to connect locally. Right. Um, there was a whole distribution network to be able to pass text files and cracked games and things like that around in the BBS days. I, and I know I'm like getting like I'm waxing nostalgic here, so I'll stop. Um, but it was a, it was, you know, it, like it, it was very much a gray area that we were living in. And, you know, it was kind of a poor kid growing up. You wanted to play a game. You couldn't afford to, you know, the whatever, 20, 30 bucks to go buy it. Um, there was a way to get it, but it cost you like hours and hours of trying to download something over a, you know, a 2400 baud connection to a BBS, right? There's. Oh, yeah. man, I was in I remember being in sixth grade in public school and, you know, I was definitely a poor kid growing up uh, and um, basically uh, that was the first time I had come into contact with a computer. It was an Apple. Um, and I could not get myself away from it. I mean, in class, it was the first thing and only thing I ever wanted to gravitate towards. And I, I think that that, that never really ended, you know, and, and I think that's why I knew like this was the right thing when I became an adult to do. Cause yeah, it was, just, it was so amazing. It was like, what does it, what is this thing? What can you do with it? And it was so much fun to just like check out all the, the edges of the OS and what it could do. And it was just fascinating to me. And um, yeah, I think public school is actually how I, until about, I want to say, I want to say maybe ninth grade uh, is when we, you know, were able to afford a, a uh, gateway PC. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the cow, the cow on the box uh -huh. yep, uh, yep. pattern, yeah. Uh, PC uh, gateway PCs, yeah. So we had we had one of those, and that's where I cut my teeth on downloading things that uh, you know now would be considered uh, pirated or whatever. Uh, again, yep. 
it's pretty easy to just share stuff back then. Yeah. So, and I laugh now too when my son. What's that? Yeah. No, no. Yeah, when your son comes in. No, it just makes me laugh when he's like, "Oh, you know." uh, Well, before I fixed our network, when you would have like slow moments on the network, I'm like, "Dude, do you even know what I used to have to go through?" Like 10 minutes to just try and get on the internet and God help you if somebody picked up a phone, you're done. Oh, yep. <laughs> that whole process starts over. That's just getting on the internet. Trying to stay on the internet, it's a whole other ball game. And trying to do anything on the internet that's meaningful back then was such, yeah. I don't know how yep. we did not plan on having this conversation, but it, it is kind of fun <laughs> to relive those, the early days. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I like I remember waking up at, you know, like five in the morning, four thirty-five, so I could connect to my favorite BBS and take my like turns on, you know, they were role-based multiplayer games, right? Like trade yeah. wars, 2000. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> Cause there was no other time, right? You know, if, if I tried to do it after school, somebody would inevitably pick up the phone and screw stuff up and yeah. 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 I found I found a way to connect to people, you know, um, who are of similar mindset. It was it was it was that's what the Internet was for me at that time. You know, just mm-hmm. a way to sort of escape the people that I really didn't, which was most people didn't really get, you know, wasn't interested in. Yeah, and that was a really easy way to connect to anybody that was interesting, mm-hmm. you know, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and then I went back to like, and I know we've talked about this before, right? From an inclusion perspective and like, you know, not knowing where something amazing is going to come from or inspiration will come from, but like you were taken on the level of just being another person on the BBS or on the internet without like looking at the fact that maybe you were a 14 year old kid or maybe you were coming from a different situation. Um, like, I, I mean, honestly, like I remember connecting in through the university in my local town and we connected into the DARPA net, right? Like into the ARPA net. And we were just scanning for systems and then connecting to them. And we would log in using default creds, right? Like LP, LP, line printer, line printer, um, like, you know, admin accounts, like what, whatever, you know, happened to be there, like default Unix creds that we got a list of from a zine. And then we would chat with the operators about like, oh, where are you at? Right. Like they didn't care that we were logged in. They, they would see we were logged in, but they would chat to it, chat with us about it. They wouldn't actually like kick us off, but it was definitely that gray area, but it was all this exchange of information. This kind of free exchange of, oh, what are you working on? Like what's, you know, Hey, this is a system we haven't seen before. That kind of thing that uh, like we don't necessarily get as much of nowadays, right? You know, everything's pretty siloed out. Yeah, and rightfully so, right? There's there's a lot of things that we ended up getting access to that we probably shouldn't have. Um, yeah, but anyway, right, the, 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 yeah, maybe we should you know move on to something else and oh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we can. We've got, we've got plenty of stuff that we can uh, chat about. Um, it's your it's your choice on uh, on what we we've got several topics. So pick pick one you want to go with uh, first, Seth. Um, like I haven't looked into that uh, the cash poisoning one. 
that's on oh, the Snoop okay. blog, but I would like to know what's going on there. And then we could talk SSRF after that. Okay, cool. So the background on this is, and I'm posting the link and just a real quick overview of cash poisoning in general before we get into this. So James Kettle and Port Swigger uh, research team, excuse me, this uh, drink is carbonated, giving me the burps. Anyways, uh, so did this research. Um, we talked about it. I think we talked about it a year ago too. I mean, just the first initial sort of what web cash poisoning is. Um, mm-hmm. This article is Snick building upon that research to find it in um, modern frameworks. So I'll go into that in a second. But the general gist with web cache poisoning is, God, I've explained this before, and it's going to be a nightmare to explain it again, I think. <laughs> so let me try and do my best. So there's, um, with web caches, you have to think about it as there is a user there is a proxy that sits in front of the web server that the user is going to communicate with. And then there's the actual web server and the web app running on that web server. And this article focuses on the web apps that are running on that web server, the frameworks, specifically the web frameworks that the frame apps are, or that the web apps are built in. So the sort of the modern way to speed things up has been, hey, look, if this request isn't any different from any other request, um, then why are we trying to, with a web app, process all that information and then use up valuable computation time, introduce some latency? Why not, if Seth's request the same as my request, just echo that uh, back at the proxy layer without even hitting the web? I mean, no reason to talk to the to to get a response from the web server. Just to send back whatever the the last response was for the same type of request. That's the general gist. So this would work well if we're talking about you know some sort of uh, especially like uh, static con uh, pages that are mostly static content, but like maybe just a few variables change on the page. Um, I guess a good example of that would be like a like a weather app or something or like a weather. Uh, page like your weather in Utah is going to be a little bit different from mine here in Virginia, obviously. Yep. So, um, but the rest of the layout and all that stuff, it's going to be the the same. Okay. So that's caching web caching in a nutshell. If your request looks like my request, I can send back uh, data. So what they found with web cache poisoning was there are, there's a concept of keyed and unkeyed inputs. Um, and the, the important factor of that, is a keyed input will be reflect, is it like a known, it's like known and will um, be reflected back in that request Uh, or sorry, in the response to the request. So I'm going back over here. I think the the sort of interesting part here and uh, you can, if you have the link, you can read up. um, We've got it up on the, the screen. So, in their example, what they did was they showed um, a request with some, a get request with some parameters. Uh, basically, it was like Q equals cat, right? And in the response, um, they're supposed to be like, uh, you know, hey, your query returned a cat, right? What they found was if, like in this example, they used Q equals cat, 
uh, ampersand UTM. So a new key value pair UTM equals something and then semicolon Q equals dog, right? So you actually are sending two sep- You're sending the same parameter twice and the second parameter at the web application layer is overwriting the first, that semicolon is being at the web application layer because of the web framework. It's being interpreted as a parameter. It's overwriting um, a Q equals cat. And instead of saying, forget that, it's gonna be Q equals dog. Here's your response for your query of a dog, right? So that gets cached now. So, um, so, uh, so instead, so basically what you're saying then that the, the record with the search query of dog is being cached as Q equals cat by the caching engine, right? Correct. Correct. The caching engine you'll see. So yes, that's a good way to put it. So if you sent the same request without the semicolon Q equals dog, and you just sent Q equals cat, the proxy sees that as well. You're making the same request as Ken who did Q equals cat. Let me send you the response for that. So it'll say your query is dog, right? Because I sent in the semicolon, the reverse proxy didn't see it as a parameter. It never recognized that as a parameter. It forwarded it onto the web application. Web application returned a different response than what, you know, because it wasn't a query for a cat. That got cached. And now your request for Q equals cat, it thinks, oh, well, whenever someone says Q equals cat, a parameter with a cat value, then we send back the response of the, you know, your query was for a dog. Just because of some confusion between like it not understanding that that semicolon is now at the web app layer being interpreted as an additional parameter. So hopefully that makes sense for folks, which I think the the link we posted is like, if you really don't understand it, that will really... uh, Break, break it down. But so, and just to go back to keyed versus unkeyed, keyed is cached, unkeyed is not cached. All right. So now what they did was they, uh, um, they checked this out in various, so they is SNCC. I should, I should say that SNCC built upon James Kettle and the Portsburger team's research by looking at practical sort of issues this arises in with frameworks. So they did Python, they did Python, I believe, Flask, um, mm-hmm. and Tornado, and sorry, going back. Oh, I think I think uh, Rack for for Sinatra Rails Rails okay. Ruby on Rails and Sinatra use. I mean, you know this, but for those listening, that uses a uh, Rack as the like middleware layer to handle requests and responses. Um, that's a simplistic version, but we'll just say that's basically what it's doing. Anyways, so uh, they found this in basically the major um, middleware that underpins uh, hipster frameworks, as you've affectionately <laughs> called them like in the past. That. Yes. <laughs> right. So that's that's essentially what it's doing. Now, I think what's more interesting is that, or not more interesting, but I think what's... Um, and honestly, I would be curious about like the, the traditional Java. I can't, I can't imagine like Java and, you know, C.NET core and like, uh, you know, like the other enterprise level, we'll say languages. I can't imagine they're not vulnerable to, to, to this in some places, but I don't know if they did, uh, 
any research there. Um, but yeah, it's I, pretty. I would imagine they would be because I like I, I keep thinking back to um, Java, like uh, JS pages, like some of the logging parameters and some of the ways that it deals with like J session ID, where it'll throw a semicolon with that in the into the URL, or it used to do that. No, it um, still does like, that. It still does that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If it so if I, it thinks you can't accept cookies, it'll do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, and that, and that's just it, right? Because at, at that point, it's taking advantage of that same flaw almost to to track the cookie values um, in a surreptitious manner, probably thinking that it's not going to be cached, or you know, at least it won't get like the the URL won't get cached with that. But so it, it sounds like there's more research there to be had. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, this is an issue if you can get, you know, especially with cross-site scripting, I think Sneak actually calls that out um, as far as, hey, we found cross-site scripting in this one page. Now I can I can basically store that across your cache so that the next, you know, 10 people or whatever get hit by it. Yeah, they showed that in the origin header. So the origin header was a um, uh, an input that was reflected back in their example, unsanitized. So it's okay. unsanitized, it's reflected back to unsanitized, and it'll show up in the response to every request that has the other keyed parameters in it. Mm-hmm. So um, meaning like all the keyed parameters, all the parameters that it checks to see if it, if this is going to be a request that's cached and then rendered to other people that make a similar request. Uh, that's that's what they basically showed is like if, if everybody else is making that same type of request, then um, yeah, that reflected origin Reflected XSS in the origin header would be echoed back. And honestly, we should probably just mention that real quick. If you're ever seeing, if you've ever seen J session ID in the URL and you're wondering why, it's it's backwards compatibility with browsers that aren't accepting cookies. So it makes an assumption that your browser is not accepting cookies, and then it will send you to subsequent ports, portions of the application um, with a redirect that has the to- the, the J session ID in the URL. Because obviously, if it thinks you can't browse the site with cookies, that's the only other way to do it. Now, this is obviously terrible and shouldn't be doing that. Uh, because, and, and again, why? Well, one of the, the you know, Seth, one of the, the easiest ways I've seen this exploited is when people uh, have their logs accidentally exposed. Like, you know how sometimes there's endpoints on an app where you can access it and then there's logs? Well, if you've got a bunch of URLs that have in that in that log, you know, a bunch of get request URLs that have a session ID, it could be J session ID, PHP session, whatever. Um, that's where I've actually abused that before. It's just been like, well, let me see what this gives me and then use that session in the URL and then request portions of the app. And then like, if the session's still valid, it's good to go. Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, that's always been a fun one, right? Like, I remember that showing up years ago, right? Uh, we always saw that at Fishnet back in the day. I, yeah. I don't see it as often, um, but it still is a default. Like, I'm pretty sure for Tomcat that, um, and any of those, um, yeah, Java application servers. Yeah, the um, application servers is specifically where it creates a session based on the user when the first time that they hit a page. And then we have all sorts of issues as well with uh, um, cookie uh, cookie security settings, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, I can't remember the names right now. I'm, I'm blanking. Really, I'm kind of tired, but that's fine. No. <laughs> I really do think web cache poisoning is going to be more of a thing as time progresses. I've seen more of an influx anecdotally in especially Silicon Valley type companies, we'll say, like, you know, leading the, the tech forefront type mm-hmm. companies where, you know, varnish is being used heavily now and it's being used like well um, mm-hmm. to keep the load back, keep the load, the load, the, the load and the, and the latency low for those users interacting with the site. So it's been um, really gaining traction and momentum. So I really do think we'll see more of these vulnerabilities um, come out. And so that's why it's good to be aware of this particular issue. So actually what's really funny, just what's really funny about this is that we, when we first talked about web cache poisoning, I kid you not within less than a few days, I at work varnish was brought up and I had, and I was like, I was like, oh, thank, thank goodness I did all my homework on this one. Research. I was like, this is amazing. Like, what a, what a time, you know, timing on that. It's amazing. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the two favorites there from a caching perspective are Varnish and Nginx, right? Like, pretty I sure think those so. are kind of the, the heavy, heavy hitters right now. I, I know there's other stuff that's out there, but definitely those are the ones. And I mean, any of the kind of WAF, style or like distribution networks will probably do that as well, right? Your CDNs. Um, that being said, you know, somebody like Cloudflare or somebody else probably has more eyes on this than if you're setting up your own Varnish or Nginx server. So it, it just got to be aware about it. It's like any of the other, you know, security issues that we talk about. As long as you're aware that it can happen, um, then at least you can look into it. But it, like, I dig that Sneak is actually looking into it a bit a little deeper uh, just to see what frameworks kind of default to this sort of behavior. Um, I, I know they, 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 they introduced the semicolon. They also introduced like, Hey, what happens when you have a parameter in the URL and also in a post parameter, right? Like what, mm. what does the collision look like and what actually gets cached? Um, Cause that, that's also, yeah. I, I mean, that's another vector that it could come in as. So Hmm. Cool. All right. There is a, before we get into our next technical um, bit here, I figured I could real quick discuss and shoot. Cause uh, someone Derek had asked about uh, our setups. Oh yeah. So I'll post, I'll post links in our Slack channel and our general Slack channel to the equipment that I use, but as a, and I'll show it here in a second. Let me uh, allow my, I'm going to, try and stream from this phone you can see my messy desk but uh yeah anyway so uh ken's messy desk that's what i'm gonna say here anyways um while i'm talking oh, turn that down that's terrible Audio. Uh, like, it's now down okay so for equipment um i'm using are you hearing any uh like echo Nope, I'm not hearing echo right now. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, so uh, for audio, using uh, Blue Yeti, it's black, so I'm not sure why they call it blue. It's like the Navy's version of blue, which is black. <laughs> um, blue Yeti, uh, Rode 1, I don't know if I'm saying that right, uh, ARM, 
Dragonfly pop filter and a shock absorber that I believe also comes from uh, Yeti and it's designed for the blue Yeti. Um, then for lighting, because this is the one I get, I've actually gotten asked about this twice now. So that's like a lot for me, Seth. Um, I'm holding my phone underneath my desk. I just realized you can like see under my desk. Anyways, uh, so yeah. Anyways, um, Elgato Key Air Light. But here's the thing. If you get the Elgato Key Air Light, you may have some issues getting it connected to your Wi-Fi network. So if you have an iPhone specifically, believe it or not, you can go into your Wi-Fi settings and uh, it'll say it recognizes this device and it's not connected to the network. Do you want to connect it? And your phone will actually set up the uh, Elgato um, just naturally. And then you install the Elgato app and you can do stuff such as you can, with my phone, I can turn it off. Uh, you can see how dark that looks. Uh, you can change the hue around and, uh, yeah, so it's pretty nice. Um, cool. So, and then the, the level of brightness can be adjusted. So that's the Elgato Key Air Light. Then the last bit here is I use a uh, Sony AX43 Handycam 4K resolution. Uh, this is a new edition. You, I actually like yours better, Seth. So I would say go with Seth's camera, not mine. But um, so, yeah, yeah, like we just did upgrades recently, um, like over the yeah over the holidays. Um, I'm actually using a digital SLR, right? Uh, Canon Rebel T6 that um, I had to get like a one of the like battery converters so I can stream with it. Um, but the utility from Canon works pretty well. Um, it's got a large CCD like as far as capturing detail, it does really well. I mean, it. I mean, it's a photo camera, right? That I'm using for streaming is basically what it boils down to. But I've got the same like I think I've got the mini. You've got the full like. Yeti, whatever Mike is, is blue Yeti that's black. Yeti that's black, yeah. Um, but yeah, that the, that camera seems to work pretty well, uh, and, and that that's what I would suggest. If you have an SLR, like a digital SLR, um, see if there is a utility out there for it from the manufacturer to stream. Uh, because of the large CCD size, they do give you better detail, right? That's is what it is. I mean, webcams, they're, they're so small that you're, you're only going to get so much detail out of it. Um, and then also like uh, image picture quality, right? Like whatever. So yeah, um, I'm trying yeah, to think what I'm using. I've got, um, the other thing is too that I use is uh, I'm trying to like here, maybe I can add this to the stream. I don't know if this yeah, will. Yeah, if you want to. Yeah. Um, so I use a, uh, I'm using a, um, standing desk so that I can pretty easily, I use two dual monitor arms, um, from Uplift. I use Uplifts. This is really messy only cause I have all my AV set up on here right now. Um, but yeah, so like basically you can see there's the camera and, uh, the cool thing about this is because everything plugs into the desk. I can raise up the desk like I just did and stand and still be able to podcast and have, you know, zoom meetings and stuff like that. So that's, this is the, and then the white bar, it's also got a whiteboard uh, deal here. So anyways, that is my cool. desk setup.
So I don't no. know if people wanted to know that either, but there you go. Now you know. All right. And now standing feels good. Someone said, keep doing it. Okay. Yep. Go for it. Cool. So what do you want to talk about next, man? Let's talk SSRF. It's the new, it's the new hipster, you know, <laughs> vulnerability, right? Yes. Um, well, like so that. like Eric was the one who posted this one. Let me put the link in there. If you want to talk about it a little bit? Yes. Yes. Um, and Eric was the one that posted this in our chat a couple of days ago. And I saw it floating around a couple actually other chat or Slack channels that I was in. Um, because it does have such a good list, like you were mentioning. Hold on, I need to, it's in my links somewhere in here. I thought I had it, glossary, yeah. Um, so first thing, uh, SSRF is um, server-side request forgery. Basically, you're handing some sort of a string to the server, and then the server makes a connection out and returns specific content right? Like whatever it happened to reach out and get. Um, so blind SSRF is basically inducing functionality that maybe doesn't get returned to you. So similar to blind SQL injection, right? You, you introduce a string, you can kind of get back a positive negative response, but with blind SSRF specifically in this article that we're posting, they talk about, hey, I'm going to go and just shut down Elasticsearch, or I'm just going to go hit this endpoint and have it initiate some sort of an action that is unintended. And it'll do that from the point of the server versus the point of the attacker, right? So whatever permissions the server has to access Elasticsearch, it's gonna go do that. Um, the most common one that popped up initially was AWS metadata endpoints where people would go and try and steal credentials. Um, but once you have access to those metadata endpoints as well, there's other things that you can actually initiate, and that's what asset node is going into here. Um, so just because you can't access like the AWS key and secret key, the access key and secret key, doesn't mean that you couldn't you know, initiate a shutdown, you couldn't change some sort of content on that AWS instance, um, like do things that were unintended, uh, but at times it's difficult to determine whether or not you can actually hit those endpoints. Um, I mean, what, what was your understanding? What was it that you liked about that article, Ken? Well, so, cause Jason Haddix, we had shared a link a long time ago on, uh, like a gist of different specifically like AWS GCP and Azure endpoints. So those were the metadata endpoints that he pointed out. This is a more like comprehensive list. I think outside of, well, not, I don't want to say more comprehensive. It's focused more on, you know, just varying technologies. And I thought it was really cool. Cause it's like up to date. It's showing like um, actual abuse of JBoss and struts, all the stuff that you we typically come a, a, across at Lassian. And I think the whole point with SSRF is that, you know, we the main thing, so applications have always talked to other services. And I think SQL is like the number one way we used to talk about, you know, abusing an application's behavior because the, the DB is typically behind a firewall, but the application isn't. So the application gives you a way to get into the network without having to like find an open port or uh, a machine that has um, some, you know, vulnerable library or sorry, vulnerable version that Metasploit, you have to use a Metasploit style payload to like exploit it or fish someone. Instead of doing all that stuff, if you can find an application that's vulnerable to SQL injection, 
you can leverage that to get inside the network since it's already communicating with it and then extract extract whatever you want from the the db or maybe the db is even more vulnerable than you could have expected and you can get a command shell on the db server now you've got a command shell reversed out that is allowing you to pivot into the network right but over time as we've talked about frameworks have protected against sql injection uh better and better it's not to say that it doesn't exist it's just to say that it, it's applications have gotten phenomenally better at protecting against SQL injection. So what else do applications talk to? Well, applications talk to everything. Now they talk to other applications, SOA, microservices. They talk to these uh, like the caching um, uh, in-memory databases. You know, I think Elastic uh, Search was in, or Elastic, yeah, I think it was Elastic Search. I can't remember. Um, you know, you've got uh, Memcache and uh, Redis, and you've got a, a whole bunch of different services, basically. That, um, and I'm trying to think of the other one that's been pretty popular: uh, Kafka pipelines. That's been another uh, way to um, that applications have been expanding their reach of what they talk to. Yeah, so you have all these services, and you want to interact with them. There is no injection in the sense of like a SQL query, right? But there is injection in the sense of if it makes a get re or if it makes a HTTP request and you can yep. modify what's in that request and you can even say where you want to go to and what you want to, you know, what you want to, um, what parameters you want to pass and what you want to ask of that and interrogate of that application. That's the interesting part. This expands upon that in showing how many different things you can test for payload wise to see if you have SSRF, I think, and, and to like go farther. That's what I thought was interesting about this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty comprehensive, right? Like, so they've got the HTTPS list or the HTTP, HTTPS list, web logic, people software. And I'm, I'm sure we can expand upon this. I know somebody's going to take this and dump it into, um, you know, some list of, uh, you know, endpoints somewhere on GitHub eventually, right? But um, Chris Gates. That's you, man. Yes. Yeah, Chris, <laughs> no, no, no. I just, he's he's the best at taking these types of things and I, I turning them Turn into, them into like, it. Yeah, <laughs> weapon <laughs> weaponizing them. Yeah, because I, I mean that that that's honestly what's going on here, right? Is Asset Note? I'm sure is using this for their bug bounty, uh, the bug bounty side of things. This is stuff that they've run into that they've been able to actually execute, right? Like. Uh, it's smart. You, th you start thinking Jenkins, Jira. Um, I also wonder, like, you know, GitLab. Yep, there it is, right? I, I was wondering where GitLab was in that list. I'm, I'm going to search for GitHub, too, because we have an importer, too. No, mm -hmm. okay. All right. There's a GitHub uh, repo. Okay, Get GitHub Enterprise Memcache RCE. Yeah. Because they could talk about Memcache uh, exits. Yep. Yeah, all of this is, yeah, the blind SSRF ideas. That's that's pretty awesome. I'm gonna have to play with this some because there's more. I I I know I run into this all the time. Um, we set up like a endpoint in AWS that we can hit using SSRF, um, but mm -hmm. at times that's about it, right? We see those requests come through, but it's it's very it is blind, so it's difficult to know what else you have access to. So having having this list together will be useful for sure. What's this gopherus? Gopher? Gopherus. What do you mean? Gopherus? Um, G-O-P-H-E-R-U-S. If you know a place which is SSRF, SSRF vulnerable, 
then this tool will help you generate gopher payloads for exploiting SSRF and gaining RCE. And there's a blog about it. Here, I'm going to put this link in because this is something I need to go look at now and see if I can use this. And that's pretty dope. Yeah. I mean, gopher, you know what gopher is, right? It's an old text-based protocol that was similar to HTTP that you could link, like you could build links in. Hmm. Have you ever used gopher before? Man, I'm, I'm old. Just <laughs> I may have. I don't remember. Yeah, it's, it's, it was good. I mean, there's still As precursors you know, to it, right? Like, and and that's what they're saying, right? You can build Gopher pages and Gopher. You could link HTTP, and it was it was very text based at the time. Um, like we're talking early '90s when it was super popular. So, mm. yeah. No, I think that predates my uh, my hacking. Uh, yeah, this is interesting. Okay, cool. Well, I'm definitely going to ch check this out. Generates. It looks like a metasploity type interface. Even it's got like a CLI little cool interface. I'll have to check that out. That's pretty dope. I'm honestly like, yeah, I want to play around with it. So, uh, yeah, you should. You should. I, I mean, Gopher is yeah, a cool. RF is like He's such a thing up. now. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, are you seeing a lot of those come in via bug bounty? No, not necessarily. Um, but uh, I am seeing. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't go into too much. But <laughs> I think we're. I think we're doing a good job of catching things before. Hopefully, before they 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 hit the uh, they hit the the internet. <laughs> publicly yeah so but yeah i mean we have seen ssrf like definitely um you know we, i've talked about it on the podcast before we've definitely seen ssrf just like maybe less frequently now but we've done a lot of things which maybe at some point i should talk about to put out some like basic requirements and like if you're putting on a new application here or a new feature or some things to think about and i think that, that hopefully has been what's helped but who knows i don't know uh, it's kind of hard with what we do to measure, you know, yeah. especially when you're a, a defender, it's hard to measure what your efforts actually do. <laughs> actually equate yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty easy when you're a consultant you're like, cool. I met, I, okay. Not, no, no, no. Sorry. Not saying it's easy to be a consultant. What I am saying is like on this particular piece, it's, I feel like it's a little bit easier to measure your success of what you do because, you know, if you've got a really good, test that you're uh, delivering a report on and you like really did a great job and like wrote it up well like you give it to someone and they're like oh cool you found all these cool volumes like there's a little bit of a measurement there but for like defenders you know what do we have like i don't know we don't know if we if something we did prevent it you know so it's a little hard to measure it's a little hard to measure come on you don't want to do a year in review on no, that's why I always think it's funny when people talk about collecting metrics. Cause I'm like, man, what are meaningful metrics anyways? Meaningful metrics, I've come to the conclusion, I think that meaningful metrics are just like, you're actually pushing the goals forward and you know what the goals are for. Yeah. Beyond that, you know, what is like, you found a thousand bugs right? this month. So that's yeah. like, we're definitely more secure. Like, no, maybe you need to focus more on not having those bugs introduced in the first place. So, yeah. I, I mean, that may be an interesting discussion to have, though, just in general, um, you know, because I, I, I know coming into it as well, like, as a consultant, my value is is 
so intimately tied with how many bugs can you find, right? Like yeah. just like, you know, giving a report to a client that's like, Hey, you guys did really well. And, you know, I only found these couple low items, right? Like it, it's, it's almost demoralizing. It's hard not to tie your intrinsic like self-worth to this, like, activity that you've performed right because that's how that's how value is associated with a consulting firm is hey were you able like the red teamers were you able to get access to whoever's you know email account right that was your target and if you can't you failed so does that mean you're a bad red teamer or does it mean like the blue team and like the defensive um, yeah controls that they put into place were actually successful i like it, it's hard to quantify. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Is yeah. it's hard to quantify what, yeah. Yeah. Like what those values actually are and whether or not it is useful. Right. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Like that, that, that is very much a, I do feel like if you can hand in a report that is like, you know, I've handed in reports where I'm just like, Oh man, when they read this, they're going to be like, Oh my God. You know? Um, and that's like easy to know that you did a good job, but yeah, there's also a lot of the, and we talk about it in the course too. It's like you, just because you didn't have like a million findings didn't mean, doesn't mean you didn't do your job, but that's why you need to write down what you did so that, you know, it's yep. very obvious the pieces of the app that you actually reviewed, um, and what you were looking for and you followed a process. And, and if, if, if you followed that process and you've followed it to the letter and you still don't have much many findings then at least you know you did your job and it just happens to be that they did a good job of securing the app mm -hmm. you know and defend as a defender it's like man you know you have so many things that you do this is the thing i think that was like um for me my first blue team job was a little kind of like uh i guess i was unprepared because you know i was coming more from like an offensive standpoint and you don't realize like how little of bug hunting really plays into an AppSec program, you know, or code security or security engineering or whatever you want to call it. Um, very little, very little, actually. It's like a per fraction and like everything else is like training and framework hardening. Like, so having like methods that override built-in methods that are more secure for like redirections or whatever, or XSS prevention or whatever. Or, you know, it might be like awareness of standards and socializing those standards and making sure that new apps that come online have like basic security hygiene. It can be tracking down, you know, bug bug bounty stuff these days. But before it was more, more like we got an email or we had a third party vendor assessment where mm -hmm. they did a they didn't even tell us they just started testing our site and they found a, like a critical IDOR. And now we got to go rush over and figure that out. It could be so many things. It could be the developers for that day are like, Hey, we had some weird stack traces and someone's doing some stuff. Is this like a security issue? Do we need to do It's like a million things you should get, you get overloaded with and very little of it actually ends up being, you know, how many assessments you did and how many bugs you found. So I think for me, that was like the thing with blue teaming that really, I wasn't prepared for and didn't really understand. Yeah. Uh, on my first gig anyways. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it, it's definitely not as, 
you don't necessarily get that same like adrenaline rush, right? Like I, I know we've talked about this before as a, as a red teamer, right? Like the first time that you get like a SQL injection or, you know, as a consultant, the, the second that I get a dump of data that I shouldn't be able to get access to, um, like you, you get this like rush of adrenaline and, you know, nice dopamine hit that's sweet. Like, uh, you know, I did my job, I, you know, this is going to pay off. Um and it's it's harder on the defensive side to to get that sort of filling because it is a you're just moving that needle slowly over time to secure an organization. Um, mm. But I and I also, I mean I I also think there's a lot of defensive jobs out there that go unfulfilled because it is a lot sexier, for lack of a better term, to go on to the red you know the offensive side of things, and mm. you know go break something. It's hard. It's hard to fix. It's easy to break. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Although sometimes it's hard to break if you have to chain things together. There's always that aspect that you have to figure out. Which is what, which is where someone who like that's where the bug bounty I feel like shines is you get somebody who's like, take SSRF for instance. SSRF is their thing, and they become the best at SSRF, and. You know, they dig on, they dig your, they dig into your application or applications looking for that one thing. And then you've got, you know, maybe 20 other people who are experts in one specific thing. And they're just, they're going really deep to chain multiple pieces in the application that are vulnerable to get something meaningful out of it. So I think that's, you know, whenever someone asks me like, oh, do you really see value in the bug bounty? Yeah, sure. There's also a lot of not value in it, but there is that value in it. You know, when you get the, the good, but again, that, that comes down to a whole other conversation, which we've had a bunch of times. And a lot of people have come on to talk about it. So we don't need to go off on that tangent. Plus we're over time here. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, we'll go ahead and cut it for this, this week. Um, I'm trying to think what we've got coming we up. We didn't get to web often, but we do need to actually get to web often at some point and like break it down and, really explain it. Um, the first time we ever like broached the subject, I was completely like not super aware of how it works. And now that's changed. There's been more information exposed and I've seen code. And so I think like, that'd be a great thing to talk about. I need to schedule, schedule guests. I've been emailing people for swag. So like haven't been emailing people for guests. So we'll start doing that again too this week. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll have guests on to talk about different Topics, but in the meantime, if something pops up that you think should be interesting that we should at least address, please pop into the Slack channel or hit us up on you know DM us on Twitter, uh, whatever, and and let us know because there's you know there's always interesting things going on and we like to dig into to everything, yeah, and everything application security related. We'll we'll keep it there, right? You know, um, yeah, for yeah, for now, for now. <laughs> Anyway, well, uh, thanks everybody for joining today. Um, as always, reach out. We'll see you all on the interwebs. And yeah, have a good week. We'll talk next week. Thanks, everybody.